Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Let us pray. Father, we pray as we come to your word that the words of my mouth and the meditation of each heart here this morning will be acceptable in your sight. You who are our strength and our redeemer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us hear the word of the Lord as it is given to us in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 18. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. This is the word of the Lord. Now to give you a sense of this passage and how the text flows in the passage, let's remind ourselves that verse 12 ends very abruptly. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. All of a sudden it stops. Everything you read from verse 13 through the end of verse 17 is a parenthetical statement. So he's going along, he says, now hold, put that on hold. I have to do, you know, the mashed potatoes. And so he comes over here and he has this long explanation that elaborates verse 12. And then he returns and he, uh, he reiterates what he's saying in verse 12 with verse 18. Now, let me read 12 and 18 so you get the feel for he says it, then he says it again, all right? Verse 12, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's verse 12. And then here's verse 18. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. Okay? So what we have here is we have the statement, then we have a parenthetical statement. He works on the mashed potatoes for a while, but then he returns to the turkey or the stuffing, depending on which you like better. For me, I'm a stuffing man. So in the middle here, we have a number of statements that open up 12 and open up 18, but they're not 12 or 18. It's a parenthetical statement. Now, what's at the center of these verses, 13 through 17? Uh, So that's five verses. There's a word. 
What's the word? Well, you would be right if you said one. The word one occurs how many times? Well, the word is repeated uh, three times in verses 12 and 18, and then it's seven times in the other five verses. We have this word ten times in these few verses. One, 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 one. One of those ten, you can make the case that it's sort of um, not saying the same thing as the others, all right? But even so, I'm counting it, all right? It's, it's the word one. There you have it, right? Um, and so what we have here is we have, and I'm going to repeat them just so you hear them, so it sort of get, makes the point. One, 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 one. It's a lot of ones for those few verses. Why is the Apostle Paul so intent on hitting us with the word one, with the concept one? Why? Okay, what the Apostle Paul is doing all through the book of Romans is he is trying to uh, remove from us our sense that we're individuals and that we stand or fall by ourselves before God that we fall by ourselves before God, that we stand by ourselves before God. And the Apostle Paul is saying, no, you did not fall by yourself, and you're not going to stand by yourself. One. And so one of the ones points to the first Adam, one of the ones points to the second Adam. The second Adam is Jesus Christ. So the Apostle Paul is setting up a parallelism between the way the fall worked and the way redemption works, the way we die and are condemned and the way we are saved and forgiven. And he wants to, us to understand that we don't die and we're not condemned, we don't go to hell because of ourselves. All right? We're not independent of Adam. In Adam, we all die. And then he goes and he shows that we do not stand or fall before God on the basis of our own works and our own righteousness. If you think 10 is a little over the top, you know, that he doesn't need to keep saying one, 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 one. The whole book of Romans is over the top, and it should give us a clue of the degree to which we are unwilling to believe and accept the truth, the cosmic truth that God has put at the center of the universe. Okay? Why? Well, right now, a lot of it is because we're Americans. Americans are very resistant to corporate solidarity. We think that we've invented individualism, and boy, do we hold to it. And so the first thing we did is we threw out the king. We're not in solidarity under the king. We don't have a king. But I think of, you know, Glenn and being a union member. He's uh, one of our number who is, who is passed. And, uh, you know, you just think about being a union. How many of us have been in a union? I've been in a union. You've been in a union? Anybody here been in a union? Oh, I can't believe it. Unions are dead, aren't they? But I mean, when you're in a union, <laughs> let me tell you, management. (laughs) 
Nobody likes management. It's what? Well, it's the brotherhood against management. You know, you're one side or the other, right? And America is always taking a stand for itself, for its union brothers. In, in a marriage, the wife is taking a stand against her husband. The husband's taking a stand against his wife, okay? In the, in the home, the children, we're not under the authority of our parents. It's school. The teachers are afraid of giving bad grades to the students because the parents will come in and complain to the principal. They can't even have solidarity between the teachers and the principal, you know? And so in America today, we're all individualists. And, and, the, and the bad thing about this is that when you apply political ideology of autonomy and individualism to the Christian faith, it doesn't mix well. It does not mix well. Okay? And so what you have to do is you have to come up with constructions and ways of speaking and ways of thinking that appear to be biblical but aren't. And one of the most common ones is, in America today, Protestants. Now, if Roman Catholics did this, it would be more understandable. But Protestants in America are all about choice. And they're all about free choice. And what they mean by that is a choice that has nothing to do with God's sovereignty. Nothing. So we define choice in a way that goes along with American political ideology, which means completely uninfluenced, just willy-nilly me. All right? And having defined that is what necessarily choice is, we then apply this to the Christian life, and here's what happens. Then... Faith, Christian faith, on the basis of which we are forgiven and accepted, becomes synergistic instead of monergistic. Okay, I'm sorry. It becomes a synergy between the sinner and Jesus. Instead of a unilateral act of the living God. And that's precisely back at the time of the Reformation, that's precisely what was going on on the part of Tetzel and the indulgences. Now, you wouldn't be surprised, my first week back from Germany, having been over there at the time of, the, of, the, uh, of all saints and all souls and all that, and having been to Wittenberg, it's, it's, it's fresh in my mind the degree to which the medieval Roman Catholic Church was a meshing together of man's good and God's good. And you see this everywhere. The, the most oppressive part of going to Europe, to me, was, some of you will not like this, but I'm sorry, this is me. The most oppressive part was the Cathedral of Cologne. You know, the other cathedrals had bad things, but it was like Cologne was bad from the word go. You come out of the train station, and they've tried to build the train station sensitive to this, you know, 600-year construction, you know. And so you come out of the train station, and they've made the, 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 uh, the roof and, and the front glass. And so as you come up out of the bowels where all the dinosaurs and monsters are, are pulsating, you know, the trains, the locomotives and everything, although it's all electric. So, so you come up out of the bowels, and there is this monstrosity, and it is a monstrosity. Brian and I climbed the tower, and it was 530 steps, and brother, we counted them. And we were so big that 
the people coming down had to sort of, we had to go like this because there wasn't even room for people to pass on this staircase. You go up and up and up and up and up. And when you get to the top, you see the same thing you see when you come up out of the bowels of the train station, which is what? It's filthy. It is covered with blackness. It's just filthy. It's black. It's filthy. It's dirty, okay? And then you go in, and inside it's not all black. What is it? It's filthy, because inside, everywhere you turn, are images of Mary, images of this person, gold, silver, ornateness. Everything about it speaks of men who believe that this is a work which will please God. In other words, to say it's baroque, not broke, it's that too, but to say it's broke, it doesn't begin to touch it. It's so over the top. I mean, it's unbelievable. And then you go around to all the different, you know, little chapels that they have all around the thing. Everywhere you look is this unbelievably expensive and long stained glass productions. And then there are people lighting candles everywhere and there's... It's, it's, it's just this massive, massive attempt to be synergistic, to be both us and God. Okay? And that's the entire Middle Ages, and I am prepared to speak to that with authority because that's what I studied at University of Wisconsin. Okay? Medieval period. And I know you get tired of me talking about this, but it's so important that you understand. The basis of all of it is the Roman Catholic doctrine of infusion. Infusion is synergism. Infusion is God working us in such a way that we can finally, after much effort, and most of us, that includes purgatory, will warrant heaven. And so you have to understand that infusion, the Roman Catholic doctrine of infusion, teaches that it is not the work of one man. It is not the one righteousness of the one man. Okay? They do teach the one act of the Apostle Paul, I mean of of Adam. They do teach that. But then it becomes God in you, Mary, if you pray to her in you, other saints in you, and it's synergism, and it ends up with you warranting forgiveness and salvation. And the entire Middle Ages is built on that. You go and you ooh and ah over the Sistine, you know, St. Peter's and stuff. Don't do that. Do you have any idea what, what, what it is built on? It was Tetzel that was funding that. You know, we all you know, talk about uh, Michelangelo on his back painting the Sistine Chapel, right? Tetzel was funding this. What is, who is Tetzel? Well, Tetzel was the guy. Nobody in, nobody in Wittenberg knows who Tetzel was. But they're just fresh out of communism. They were in East Germany. Tetzel was the man, and I saw one of the boxes from the time where you put the coin in, the minute you put the coin in, a soul springs free. He was selling salvation, and the political leaders and the religious leaders were all in agreement with this. 
And so Tetzel went around to the poor commoners, telling them that if you'll put money in this box, we will then give you a plenary indulgence. And I saw the indulgence. It's two pages, and it has spaces in where you can put in the name of the person that bought it. And this gives them a complete ability to be forgiven, and I think twice before they die, once at death and one other time in their life. So twice they can be clean. Now, does that sound like the one righteousness of the one man, Jesus Christ? It's not. It's not even the righteousness of the individual. Think how perverse this is. It's actually the, 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 uh, the commodification of salvation where it's not even the righteousness of the individual. It's not two. Even two would be an improvement over Rome. What Rome is actually selling is the treasury of merit. It is super arrogatory works that others have produced that are so good that the church has them accrue to its bank account and they can then sell. So it's not one. It's not two. It's like three and four and five and three Googleplex. And the Apostle Paul, the entire book of Romans is saying what? Over and over and over again, the Romans is saying, it is not your works. It is not your works because, what does it say in Scripture? It says, all our righteousness is is what? The, The actual literal thing is bloody rags. That's what our works are. And here we are Protestants today trying to talk about how God's done everything he can do, but only one thing remains, and that is you have to choose him. And so Protestants, instead of lighting candles in front of images of Mary and building cathedrals for six centuries, Protestants just go all around so eager. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and he's done everything he can do, but what you, can, what you have to do is you have to choose him, choose him, choose him. Choose, come on, choose, quick. Okay, you made the choice. Now, don't believe it if anybody tells you you're not saved because you did what you could do. Choose them. And listen, those of us who are believers, we look back on God giving us the gift of faith, which is what it says in Ephesians. And let me tell you, describe precisely to me your moral agency at that moment when he gave you the gift of faith. It's, I'm sorry, maybe I'm weird. But I mean, my agency at the moment that God gave me the gift of faith was, uh, it wasn't just zip. It was pretty negative under zip. I was so lost in my trespasses and sins. I had nothing to bring to God. Certainly not choice. You know what my choice of God was? My choice of God was realizing I was too much of a coward to kill myself. Now, does that sound like choice? You know, you don't really want to kill yourself, and so you receive the gift of faith, and you're born again by the Spirit of God. (laughs) And how would we describe that as choice? You know? It's not choice. And so look, we Americans have to be done with our desire to constantly bring something to the table that we think 
will cause God to look with favor on us. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't do good works. That's what we're saved for. And if we don't have them, we're not saved. Okay? I'm not trying to diminish good works in God's sanctification of us. If you don't have good works, if you don't have the love of Jesus Christ spread abroad from your heart, what I would say to you is you better ask yourself if you have any faith. But the order is imperative. Our works are the fruit of the unilateral action of God in our lives that gives us the gift of faith and borns us again. And the Apostle Paul knows how perverse our hearts are, that we don't want to believe that. We want to believe at the beginning we had something to bring to the table. And so the Apostle Paul says what? Okay, you ready? One, 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 one. One, 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 one. And that's just in a few verses. And he's hammering what? He's hammering a concept that's heinous to Americans. We celebrated in Poland with Lekwalesa. But Americans hate it. It's a principle of what? Solidarity. Those ones are internally important to us because the first one, which is Adam and his one sin, condemned us to death and to hell. And that is the beginning of you having any hope of self-knowledge and self-awareness. Until you face the fact that what explains you is that you sinned in Adam and you died in Adam. You will never understand yourself. I read this a lot, but I'm going to read it again. This is from... Uh, Pascal, the great French philosopher and mathematician, is from his pensée, and uh, it's one of my favorite uh, quotes ever. He says this, he says, for it is beyond doubt, he's writing, what would it be, the 1700s, for it is beyond doubt that there's nothing which more shocks our reason our logic, our understanding. There's nothing that shocks us more than to say that the sin of the first man, Adam, has rendered guilty those who, being so removed from this source, seem incapable of participating. There's nothing that offends our sense of justice and rightness and fairness more than the fact that somebody who's so far behind us that, and then telling us that because of his sin, we're damned. And, and we all die. He says, it just seems so offensive to us. It seems illogical, impossible. He says, this transmission does not only seem to us impossible, it seems also very unjust. For what is more contrary to the rules? And then he, he puts in this word, and it's a precious word. He says, what, what is more contrary to, to the rules of our, and he says, miserable justice? In other words, he's, he's saying to us, your sense of justice is miserable. You're pathetic. You don't have any awareness of what justice is, but I'm, I'm going to keep going, but I'm giving you a hint. Your justice is miserable. All right, but he says this. He says, for what is more contrary to the rules of our miserable justice 
than to damn eternally an infant incapable of will for a sin wherein he seems to have had so little a share that it was committed 6,000 years before he was in existence. And then this. Certainly nothing offends us more rudely than this doctrine, and yet without this mystery, the most incomprehensible mystery of all, we are incomprehensible to ourselves. Okay, come on, people. You and your loved ones, your little babies, are completely unable to be understood until you see the corruption of Adam, that one man. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying. Until you face the corruption in your own heart, in your own will, in your own mouth, in your own eyes, until you face the corruption that you have with money, the root of all evil, until you face the corruption that there is present in this congregation too among those who believe in God, a corruption that's traced back to Adam, until you face that the ordering principle of this world is not the oppression of religion that tells people they're sinners. The oppression in this world is because God made us in solidarity with Adam. And because of Adam's sin, we all die. Until you face that, you don't understand yourself. And you have no self-awareness. And everybody around you is completely aware that you don't know yourself. It is impossible to understand. If you read any history, anybody read any history of Stalin, it, it, literally, without Adam, it would be impossible for Stalin to be as, as evil as he was. You have to have some strong help like Adam to be Joseph Stalin. And then you look at... And, and, and everything you say today that's helpful to people, they, they write it off as politics. You're just being political. And so you have to keep your mouth shut as a Christian or you're going to be accused of being political. And I, I abominate it. I'm so tired not being able to say anything helpful for fear that people will say, he's just being political. You know, how about if I say that I'll never vote again? Then can I open my mouth? You know? You look at the wickedness of our Supreme Court. These men and women are wicked. They pervert justice, just like it says all through the Old Testament. They call wrong right, and they call right wrong. And then you look at social media. Social media is filled with wickedness. It is lies and lies and lies and lies. But the lies have the approval of everyone. And the Christians ain't opening their mouths. You aren't opening your mouths. I know this because I'll say things publicly that would have been a yawn to anybody in the prior centuries of church history. And I'll say them, and everybody will go, oh, he's over the top. Christians, that's what they say. And all I'm saying is things that are pretty tame by anybody's judgment in all prior centuries of church history. Okay? And I know because I read them. And all you Christians, you're like, oh, no. And so the Christians are, are, are not oppressed by the public culture of social media. 
we Christians have created it. Because we have shown precisely where we will not speak the truth, support the truth, or love the truth. And guess what? The world's quick to jump in the vacuum. I always tell people, the reason America aborts 1.3 to 1.7 million children every year is because the Christians want those children aborted. We have no love for the oppressed. Do you understand me? We make a big show out of having love for them. You know, we say we love homosexuals who are tempted by homosexuality. We say we love adulterers. We say we love fornicators. We say we love the unborn. We say we love blacks. We say we love Chinese. You know, the whole uh, discrimination charges against Harvard. We don't give a rip. We are feathering our own beds and hope we can die before our pension fund runs out. This is who we are. In other words, look, when it comes to our solidarity with Adam, you turn and look anywhere you want in this church, and then turn your eyes inside yourself. You are a piece of work. You, not your brother, not your sister. It's you. You're proud. You don't love other people. You don't love your wife. You don't love your husband. You don't love your children. Don't you mothers tell me you love your children. You use them for your own promotion. Okay? Every school teacher knows it, don't you, Linda? I saw your face. That's what made me say that. You should keep your face quiet. <laughs> Linda spent her life teaching, you know. <laughs> so, and her face is... Oh, I love you, Linda, very much. And so listen, brothers and sisters, we have to be done with this pecking order that we try to put together in the church. We have to be done with our claim to have something synergistic to give to God. We have to be done with our pleading for a bilateral truce with God. We have to be done with ourselves. We are pieces of work. And the reason is, in God's sovereignty, he made the world in such a way that the entire universe, the entire universe is in solidarity with Adam and his one sin. One. That's the meaning of one here. We are dead in our trespasses and sin because of one man and one sin. And it really doesn't matter what you think is fair. It doesn't matter. I mean, I'll deal with you gently if you come to me. I won't yell at you the way I'm yelling now. Certainly, I understand why none of us want to submit to this truth and love it. But God has set up the world as a world of solidarity of groups under a federal head, okay? And he deals with groups on the basis of their federal head. He deals with homes on the basis of the father. Where the father is absent, Lydia gets baptized in her whole household. He deals with the home 
on the basis of its federal head. Who's the federal head there at the riverside? Huh? 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 It's Lydia. It's a woman. He deals with a federal head in nations through the king. He deals with a federal head. He deals with the state of Indiana on the basis of the government. And the government on the basis of the governor. He deals with churches on the basis of the pastors and the elders. With women of the church on the basis of the Titus II women. God deals with groups on the basis of the individuals who head those groups. God deals with the universe on the basis of Adam. Now, why am I saying the universe instead of man? Because man's a generic term in the Old Testament for the race of Adam. The reason is, you remember, in a, in a few chapters from now in the book of Romans, it talks about all creation. Grieving, mourning, all creation groaning under what? They're groaning under the fall. They're groaning under the suffering that is in them, in animals, because of the fall. The book of Romans teaches us that all creation suffers because of Adam's sin. Not just the race of man, but animals and trees, the oceans, the algae. The problem isn't man today. The problem is the man. And the man was Adam. And listen, when they tell you that there are beings out there somewhere that have no connection to Jesus Christ or Adam or God, no, that is God's creation. The universe is God's creation. Wherever you go in the universe, you're going to discover suffering because of the, of the sin of Adam. Does this make sense to you? It groans. What groans? All creation. What is all creation? All creation is 10 billion light years away. Okay. Now, you can say that the sin of Adam, the one sin of the one man Adam, is bad news. I don't think it's fair to say it's bad news. I always receive it as good news because it makes myself comprehensible to myself. It's the reason that even as a Christian, there's this law of sin and death that remains in me. I understand that the work of recovery from the fall of Adam is as cataclysmic as the fall itself. And so I become understandable to myself. Then I don't think when I hear, you know, I get, I get on the phone this time. I've been gone for a couple weeks, right? I get on the phone with Max, you know, as I drive back here. I got four hours. And I go, oh, no. And then he tells me the next one. I go, oh, no. <laughs> and then he tells me the, other, the next one. I go, oh, no. <laughs> but you know what I don't say? I never say, what? serious? I can't believe it. She said that. She 
Come on, you guys, laugh. It's funny, <laughs> you know? I mean, are you really surprised by the sin of your wife or husband? Oh, no! <laughs> are you surprised by the sin of your children? I mean, at least your wife has plausible deniability. She's not your genes. But you shouldn't be shocked by any of your children's sin. <laughs> They're your genes, you know. If you want to know what genes are, ask Dr. Bob afterwards. He'll give you a full explanation. <laughs> Come on, Bob, that was funny. That was funny. Yeah. So I think that the fall is good news to us because it tells us that we, every single one of us, are hopeless and we need a savior, okay? Be happy to be in solidarity with Adam. Now, what about that one man, Jesus Christ? Is that good news? Now listen, before we get into that being good news, let me tell you, if you won't have Adam as your federal head, you may not have Jesus Christ as your federal head because you don't have a Christ-sized problem in your life. There's no sense going to Jesus Christ to take care of a toothache or a well-intentioned mistake. And that's the most many of you will ever cop to your husbands and wives, that you meant well, but you realize it was wrong. No, don't take that to Jesus. You don't need Jesus for that. An aspirin will clear that up fine. A few more jumping jacks in the morning, and all your intentions will be good. So don't think you could have Jesus Christ if you will not submit to the doctrine of the fall in Adam and original sin. You do not know who you are yet, and it's not until you know who you are that you're going to plead for surrender. Okay? But now, you see who you are. It's not a mistake. And those of you who are in high school and junior high, I want to talk specifically to you for a second. If you think you're a piece of work, and it seems like every day you live, you realize you're more a piece of work, in other words, that you really are sinful, and it's awful, this is what it means to be in junior high and high school. This is a design feature. You are supposed to get pimples at the time where you discover your sexuality. Because if your discovery of bad sexual thoughts doesn't depress you, your pimples will. And that's good. They work in, this is synergy. Okay? You're aware that you're too short, you're too tall, you're too fat, you're too thin, you're stupid, you can't get good grades, you've got pimples. All of this stuff is God's gift to you to plead guilty to the fall. It's not something that is, well, I'm trying to discover my identity, and this is a particularly awkward period in my life, but I'll get through it soon, and, and so this too will pass, and so I'll survive it the best way. No, the whole point of it is for you to plead with God for mercy. The only thing you need is mercy. You don't need to get over your pimples. 
what you need is to see your pimples are shouting what your, your interior is. It's festering pustule of wickedness inside of you. And this God has a solution for. Are you all with me? And so take your pimples to God. Tell God that you're thankful for your pimples because you realize how filthy you are inside. And then say to him, is there hope for me? Is there hope for me? And then you'll read this, and in verse 16, if you could skip to 16, you'll see that it says, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. So that's Adam. You all know that. The one sinned, the one who sinned, Adam. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression. You see this? We're in Adam now. Resulting in condemnation. And boy, do you feel condemned in junior high and high school. One, I mean, if I quoted somebody right now, he'd feel like I was abusing my privileges, but I could quote him and every single one of you would say, yeah, that was me in high school. Condemnation. Everywhere you turn. Failure and condemnation. This is the life of a junior high and high school student. Okay? And so it comes from Adam, resulting in condemnation. But, now that but is very important. But, on the other hand, on the other hand, on the one hand, On the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. Look carefully at this, and what you'll see is that all of us are judged and condemned and are hopeless because of one sin of one man, Adam. But the one righteousness of the one man, Jesus Christ, what? It covers, it covers every single bit of it. It covers an infinity of transgressions. That's how precious the blood of Jesus Christ is to God the Father. And so... If you will be in solidarity with Adam and plead guilty, unconditional surrender, no, no synergism, nothing to bring, just abject surrender before God, then God will pour out on you the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and it won't just cover Adam's sin, which you need it to cover because his sin is your sin. It'll cover every single wicked thought, every bitterness, every lustful look, Every precious, oh me precious about your money. Every, every slothful, every, every single sin you have ever committed. And his righteousness and his vicarious atonement for us is sufficient of paying for every sin that every man has, every woman, every child has ever done. The blood of Jesus is infinitely precious. And it is capable of wiping out the most wicked things that you and I do and every person who's ever lived has done. There is not one person here who is unique in their sin. 
There is not one person here that is beyond the wideness of God's mercy. I know you'll say that that's the reason you don't come to Jesus, because there isn't a wideness in his mercy. And, And I say, why? And you say, well, I go to church and I see how moralistic they all are. And so God must be somewhat stingy, right? No, God isn't stingy. Moralists are stingy because moralists are into the pecking order. Moralists want a payoff for going to church, and that payoff better be that people that don't go to church aren't as high as they are, (laughs) right? Now, the wideness of God's mercy is shown right here. Many transgressions many transgressions. And so, what do you believe about yourself? Do you believe that you are dead in your trespasses and sin because of the one man, Adam? Now, I suspect most of us will say, yeah, I do believe that. Then the second question is, do you believe that the righteousness of Jesus Christ and that his atoning work on the cross, his blood, is sufficient for every single sin you have ever committed? Do you believe that it's sufficient? And I I think a lot of you would say, well, yeah. And then what you would do is you'd say, well, you know, you'd say hypothetically, you know. I mean, I suppose. I mean, that's what you tell me, Tim. And I say, well, what about the Apostle Paul? And you say, well, yeah, but the Apostle Paul said a lot of things that are very difficult. I say, What about Jesus? He said, come to me. And then he put the qualification on it. He didn't just say anybody. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. All of you who have labored and labored and labored. And he says, you, I will give you rest. Then he says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and humble of heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. He says to those who have no rest in their soul and who are weary and heavy laden, he says, come to me and I'll give you rest. And you will take my yoke upon you and you'll find my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so do you have faith? And you say, well, faith is a gift. I can't scare it up. I say, no, but you can ask for it. And God hears those who come to him. And he says those who come to him will never cast out. It would be a perverse system if God said, come to me, and then you said, but uh, predestination and all that. And he said, yeah, I was teasing. You can't really come, and I'm not sure if I'm going to let you. Take the Bible the way it is, would you please? The Bible says nobody can come to God unless the Father draws him. Nobody can come to Jesus. And the Bible says, come to me. And if you set those two up in opposition to each other, it's because you're a rationalist and you're proud. They're both true. God says to those of you with burdens who are heavy laden, come to me, and I will give you rest. That's what he says. And so do it. Come to Jesus. 
You don't have to wait until you're an adult. Come to him. Some of those extraordinary work that we have seen in this church has been in, in people who are young. Sometimes very, very young. And all of a sudden, one day, they believed in Jesus. And finally, they were free to be sinners. <laughs> and so everybody began to find them tolerable. Because churches for sinners. All right, I'll stop. I'm getting repetitious. But if you think I'm repetitious, there's a dude that you need to read. His name is the Apostle Paul. (laughs) And I'm telling you, that guy's a piece of work. He thinks everybody's stupid. Says it over and over and over and over and over again. 